The New Testament reading is found from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 20 through chapter 6, verse 10. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, at unacceptable time I have listened to you, and on a day of salvation I have helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward but when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like him, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day and our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we uh, think on these words, this teaching of Jesus, that you would give us ears to hear, you give us minds to understand, and a spirit that's willing to receive the things you have to say to us this morning. So speak to us, Father, Son, and Spirit, in these words we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the midst of this series on the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus calls the church, the people of God, to a righteousness, or we could also say a justice, a just way of living life that is greater or exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, the religious leaders that everybody in that current context would have said they understand what justice is, they understand what righteousness is. But Jesus calls us to something far deeper, and we've looked through that section where Jesus begins to elaborate on the, you've heard it said, but I say to you, statements that give us the sense of the ethical shape, the moral shape of God's kingdom, this kingdom that has come clear in the person of Jesus. And it is um, a kingdom in which we're meant to live with one another in a certain kind of way. And we've already been talking about that. But then the question always would come, well, how do we get on with that? Uh, And here, Jesus invites us to get on with it, first of all, in prayer. Now, I want to situate this in our current, like, conversational environment in our culture, right? So we live in this very tense moment of politics in the United States and in Western cultures in general, I think, in which we find ourselves sort of alienated from some people that we would have previously thought ourselves close to. We find ourselves sort of um, despairing of the possibility of conversation. I was reading a a blog that a friend of mine writes, uh, and he was reflecting on some of the ways in which the social media environment has sort of algorithmically pushed us to the extremes of each of our echo chambers, right? You know what that means and what that's like, how we struggle to listen to one another, we struggle for conversation. He uh, comments this way. He says that essentially, Americans have become so good at independence that we have little imagination for the mutual pursuit of a common good. It's an interesting bit of commentary. He continued, we've splintered so successfully that the best we can hope for in ordinary conversation is a superficial conversation about your favorite Netflix shows. Have you ever found yourself in that little space where that's all you know to talk about? This morning, we're looking at Jesus' teaching on prayer, and it's really the place in which he begins to draw the community of his family together in a shared language, a common language of prayer that sort of goes across all community expressions of Christianity, right? Christians throughout the world have prayed the Lord's Prayer, uh, and it shapes this common way of talking about God as we seek the common good of heaven on earth. Now, before Jesus gets into that language, he gives us this preface 
that leads us to think about what prayer is and what it's not. In other words, for prayer to sort of be, um, he situates prayer in the space of intimate friendship with God, I think would be a fair way of saying it, that leads to an authentic conversation with God about our own struggles in the world and the struggles of other people in the world, right? We all experience the brokenness of the world. In other words, in order for there to be integrity in the conversation we have with God, we need to understand what that conversation is. It's a space of vulnerable communion with God Himself that changes the way you and I begin to talk, not just with God about our world and our needs, but also the way we interact with one another. In order for the conversation to have integrity, it has to sort of capture this vulnerability that Jesus has in mind. Prayer is not a PR prop for your reputation or for your identity needs in a community. Now, that seems like an odd way to start because most of us, most of us feel a little more embarrassed about our prayer life probably than good about it. So we're not always conscious of using something like prayer. Uh, we may be a little more conscious of using something like almsgiving or giving, right? Some practices of piety sort of that we want sort of credit for, right, uh, inside of the community. But here Jesus begins to call us to think about just that that real temptation to use any kind of spiritual practice as we do it before one another or with one another or alongside of one another, to use it for our own selves sort of performatively, to prop ourselves up in the community or in our own sense of who we are or our identity. Even prayer, something like prayer, can be subject to our egos taking over. I want you just to imagine this in the context of one of your most intimate friendships. Maybe it's a friendship, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a relationship that you have with your siblings or with your, with your, uh, your, ch your children or just a colleague in the workspace. You, can you imagine sort of being in a conversation with that person? And there are other people in the room, and instead of sort of paying attention to that person, your eyes are constantly darting up to wonder what other people are seeing and hearing you do in the conversation with the one you love. Now, there's something really messed up about that. But that's the kind of thing that Jesus is calling us to think about when it comes to something like prayer or the other practices of spiritual piety. Prayer is an intimate, vulnerable connection and conversation with God's own self about those things that break his heart or delight his heart and about those things that break and delight our own hearts. It's that kind of space with God. And it's in that context or that setting the frame of prayer that Jesus begins to give us actually the framework for prayer, the words, the common language. So first of all, our Father. Now sometimes for some of us, utilizing the language our Father can feel a little bit off-putting. And you've known friends like that, or maybe you are, that's true of your own life. And the reason it's off-putting for us is that when we think about a caregiver in our lives, maybe it is a literal father or a mother or other caregivers, other people that have been around you to support you in your life, you're sort of, you sort of recognize that there are disappointments that you have in that relationship. And it's possible for us in that moment to begin to take this word father, you know, or even mother, and we project those experiences onto God. But what Jesus is inviting us to do is something quite different from that. He's inviting us to be with him in prayer as he talks to his heavenly father. So he's inviting us to think about our life with God in terms and on the basis of and really from the same spot, if you will, in which he stands as son to father. 
so that by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. Notice that we are always doing this as a collective, even when you're alone, because we say, Our Father. Jesus wants us to remember that we join the community of His people throughout the world and indeed throughout time, crying out to God, our Father, alongside of one another. And that becomes important as we think about what it means for us to ask for bread or what it means for us to think about forgiveness or what it means for us to be in the conflict with good and evil. So the second thing Jesus offers here is in terms of request or the common language is that we should live this posture of surrender before God. All right? He invites us to this sort of practice of surrender or language that calls us into surrender. We see that in the phrases, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here Jesus is inviting us to get into a frame of mind and heart in which we have open hands before God. We just simply desire His will. And that's challenging because most of us, when we come into a space of talking with God or even speaking with one another, we have clenched hands around an agenda, right? Have you ever felt the tension of having an agenda or you have a sense of what must happen or what is right that must happen and you don't know how to enter the conversation openly, waiting to see what God would do, waiting to see what God's will is, but rather we're so convinced of our own experience, our own desires, our own um, expectations that we don't know how to be in the conversation openly. And here's what Jesus invites us to, is to get into this posture with God in which we open our hands before Him, and we want simply His will. Apart from that, Sky Jathani describes, he says that we're, the whole purpose of this prayer is that we would begin to pray down heaven to, to earth itself. But if we don't have this kind of open posture, there's no way we can begin to do that, to talk about bread and forgiveness and the conflict with good and evil. Just give you a little example of where this has been so important in the life of our community. So some of you won't know this and others of you will, but you know, last year when City Church and Liberty started this practice of discernment as to whether or not we should become one church, right? Should we cease to be two congregations and become one congregation? One of the very first things that we did as a group, as a discernment group, is we just talked about the importance of taking our hands off the process, of not living in those questions thinking we knew what was best, but seeking the Lord very open-handedly saying, thy will be done, and asking the Lord, what is your will? It's not that people in the room didn't have an opinion or a thought about what they thought was good and right and even wise or what they were afraid of, but the simple thing that we wanted to begin with was that we would have this open-hearted posture of saying, well, Lord, what, what do you want? This is not unlike the prayer of Jesus in the garden in which he is reflecting on the horrors of the evil that is about to befall him. And he, in that space, just very, very simply says, not my will, but your will be done. So living with God in this open space is the very place in which we can begin to have a more honest conversation about things like bread, the forgiveness of debts, the deliverance from evil. So think about these three pieces now, daily bread, forgiveness of sin, and the spiritual conflict in which we live our lives. Daily bread, 
We could also tag this on to material needs. So like we recognize that here in these specifics that Jesus gives us to pray for, that he's not confining our prayers so much, but he's giving us a guideline for prayer, right? He's framing out the kinds of things that we need to talk to God about. And here in this category of daily bread, he's talking about just ordinary things that we need in our world. If we're to live a life that's flourishing, right? I need food. You need food. We need shelter. We need um, health care. We need, and you could just go on and on and think about all of the different things that we need to sort of live a meaningful life that's not structured by the, the sort of scarcity mindset of our world, but there's a sense of abundance. So here Jesus is talking about food, about material needs. And in our world that is structured by fear and selfishness and greed, what we have to recognize when it comes to this question about bread is that it is scarce. It's not abundant. There's a lack. And in other material needs, the similar could be said for food and clothing and shelter, for meaningful work and on and on. But Jesus just says, with that need in mind, whether it's your own or someone else's, ask for daily bread. And remember, it's not an individualistic prayer, right? We say these words alongside of other followers of Jesus throughout the world and alongside of fellow human beings in the world in which we recognize that, right, that, that there's not an abundance of bread in the world. This isn't a splintered prayer for daily bread. <laughs> My needs versus your needs. Our needs versus the needs of another community in another part of the world. This is a space in which we have a common and shared look towards our Heavenly Father for today's needs wherever they exist, that the kingdom would come, that there would be enough bread that comes down from heaven to feed everyone that is hungry. That's the imagination Jesus has around this prayer. One of the commentators I was reading said, I've only properly received daily bread when no one is made poor by my riches. So think about that, that this prayer is not only asking us to consider our needs and the needs of others, but also the way in which we live with the bread that we have, with the provision that we have. The request for bread invites us to ask for food we need, but alongside our neighbors and their needs to reorder the way that we live with what we have. I think about this in the context of Christian community, right? And so as you sort of travel out of the gospel story and you move into a text like Acts, where Luke is describing what happened in the early church in the aftermath of the gift of the Holy Spirit, what does he describe in chapter 2 except that when someone in the community of faith had need and it was become known, it became known in the community that they had need, someone else would say, I've got a piece of property I can sell. And they would sell it, they would liquidate it, right? And they would bring their gift and lay it at the feet of the apostles for them to sort of discern where the need was and to fill that need. In other words, daily bread was given as Jesus' followers lived freely with the bread that they had. And that's his invitation as we consider what it means to take these words upon our lips, which we do week after week after week. The second specific request that Jesus offers us here is a, a question or the, this category of forgiveness. And this is part, this part of the prayer, right, invites us to think about the way we live and relate to the people that owe us something, 
Now, maybe it's someone that owes us a literal debt. There's some financial debt that, that Jesus would have had in mind for people to be thinking about. Or maybe it's the way, the emotional debt that we live with in relationships, right? If we all have some type of debt that we experience from others or that we offer others, or, right? We live in this complex world, right, in which we're not free with one another. So Jesus here simply invites us to think about this category of forgiveness, which in its most basic form simply means that we absorb the cost of the debt, whatever it is, whether it's emotional or financial, we absorb it to ourselves without seeking to extract payment from the other. His words here, I think, are disorienting to us, right? (laughs) And every week there's this little bit of disorientation that's injected into our prayer time when we take the Lord's Prayer to our lips because on the very surface, they sound so transactional. In other words, that what Jesus has in mind is that we would base the forgiveness we receive from God on the forgiveness that we extend to those who are our debtors. So imagine, if you would, being in that space of prayer, and you just simply say something like, well, God, I have forgiven the debts that are owed me. Now forgive me similarly. I don't want to say that. You don't want to say that. Because when you think about the struggle that we have to actually release people from that which we perceive ourselves to be owed by them, it's extreme. It's difficult. Our imaginations are, you know, we struggle to wrap our minds around that practice of forgiveness. Seems far more than we're capable of. I want God's kind of forgiveness, not my kind of forgiveness. Maybe Jesus wants us to know that our struggle to forgive others is an indicator of the degree to which God's gracious forgiveness of us has taken root or not taken root in the soil of our own hearts and lives. The parable of the debtors that Jesus will later tell seems to get at that kind of a problem. Rowan Williams offers an analogy that he connects to Gregory of Nyssa, a bishop in the early church. He says, imagine the way a parent teaches a child. So we've had this lovely baptism, right? So imagine sort of being in a space of needing to help a child grow up. And what does a parent do in that space, right? You, you say to your child, hey, watch me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to play with Play-Doh. And I'm gonna teach you how to play with Play-Doh. I'm going to teach you how to walk or how to crawl. Now you do it. Now you do it. Rowan Williams says that's something of what God is inviting us to in this part of the prayer. God looks on us and he says in this most delicate and intimate and vulnerable and even scary space, he says, now you do it. I want to learn from you. It's a remarkable space to think about. It gets to the kind of intimate and vulnerable friendship that God wants to have with each of us in which forgiveness is the common language and practice of the kingdom of God that comes to earth. So Jesus invites us week after week after week to wrestle with how is forgiveness taking root in our life as a common language and as a common practice, or how is it not as we think about the way God forgives us? This last cluster of requests focuses on spiritual deliverance. 
where Jesus just simply urges us to pray that we would be kept from the time of trial or other translations, temptation, and rather that we'd be delivered from the evil one himself. We seek and we share bread and we seek and we extend forgiveness in the world in the context of this spiritual conflict, of the battle between good and evil that is in our world. And what we need to remember here, I think, in this part of the prayer is that that which Jesus asks us to do is beyond us. It's greater than us. It's always unfolding in this world of spiritual darkness, in this world of spiritual conflict, in which the line between good and evil isn't just out there, but it's internal to our own souls. He asks us to recognize our inability, the limitations, our lack of capacity, that the conflict that's unfolding in our world is much greater than our ability to strategize it. It's interesting when you think about the way prayer is enacted in the contemporary church. We live in a world, right, this modern world of technology and wisdom and knowledge, the world of consultants that if we run into a problem, we immediately imagine the first thing we should do is call in the expert. But Jesus seems to be urging us to recognize you are always backed into a corner, whether you know it or not. Your life is unfolding in a space of spiritual conflict. So talk to God because he cares for you, because he's with you. He's with you. He loves you. He delights to give you the kingdom. Now, do you believe that? Let me just encourage you to look at the data of human history. If you scroll through the pages of any history book or you look through any historical account of human beings, what you'll discover is this is that from the earliest days to the very present day, we struggle with very similar conflicts. We live in a world of remarkable collective wisdom, remarkable collective knowledge, scientific advancement, technological advancement, educational attainment, and educational possibility. We live in a world of psychological understanding of the internal life of a human being, at least with some general degree, We live with generational wealth and tremendous wealth moments. We live with every imaginable kind of improvement that it's possible to imagine exists. And yet, because of human selfishness, we struggle with one another. So hunger persists in the world. Poverty is not eradicated or even near eradicated in the world. Healthcare is not available to everyone. And we see this conflict unfolded even in the midst of people receiving COVID vaccines. We don't even know how to stand in line. Racism persists, sexual abuse persists, people trafficking persists, genocide persists, wars still happen, and they'll happen next year too. And Jesus, in the midst of this real conflict that he says is larger than your ability to solve, larger than your ability to save yourself, he says, become aware of the spiritual darkness that is in the world and that confronts all of us. As you're asking for God's kingdom to come, look to God for your deliverance. Get in this humble posture before God. So here is Jesus, God in person in our world, the same world as which we live in, very common, all of these struggles happening in the context of his own life, reminding us that God has not abandoned us to the ruin of this present darkness. But he's present, and he's present to bring his kingdom, and he delights to give us the kingdom. 
So Jesus says, do the simplest work of all. Talk to God. And talk to him from this space of humble relationship that is anchored in your life with me. Talk to God about the darkness, about your debts and your debtors, about your hunger and your bread. Talk to God about the bread that you have and the bread that others don't have. Talk to God about your struggle with all of the ways in which you and I find it very difficult to hallow his name, in which we find it difficult to actually unclench our fists around our desires and our expectations and our demands. And behold the Son of God in our world, loving us to the end of himself, that our debts might be absorbed, that we might be fed the bread from heaven, that we might live a world in a world that will ultimately be delivered out of darkness into the light of the kingdom of come. Jesus says, talk to God, your Father, who cares for you. And this is the most basic work of the church as we seek to embody the politic of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that as we reflect on these words uh, this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and you would help us to know how we might be people that delight to speak with you in communion with you. So would you draw us into these kinds of intimate, vulnerable conversations, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.